Welcome to the VHA Innovation Ecosystem, a podcast sponsored by the VHA Innovators Network and Diffusion of Excellence Initiative that focuses on all the great, innovative work driven by VA employees to improve veteran care. I'm Bryn Cole, the VHA Innovators Network Programming Lead, and I'll be your host for this episode of VHA IE. Women have long been an active part of the United States Armed Forces and have bravely stood in defense of our nation in a myriad of roles, including soldiers, spies, cooks, nurses, linguists, and much, much more. Despite this, the United States government did not formally recognize women as permanent members of the armed forces until 1948. Today, women comprise nearly 15% of all active duty military and 18% of all National Guard and Reserves. There are about 2.2 million women veterans who make up nearly 7% of all VA healthcare users. Women are the fastest growing group within the veteran population, and VA expects the number of women veterans using VA care to increase dramatically as more and more women serve in the armed forces. In recent years, VA has increased its efforts to provide comprehensive and gender-specific care to women veterans, which includes providing a Women Veterans Program Manager at every VA hospital. Women Veterans Program Managers advise and advocate for women veterans and coordinate services throughout the hospital and their affiliated community-based outpatient clinics. However, women veterans still report feeling that their voices are unheard, their needs unmet, and their experiences undocumented. The barriers women veterans have reported include the perceived stigma associated with seeking mental health care services, the availability of childcare while using VA services, and the gender sensitivity of healthcare providers and staff to issues that particularly affect women. On this episode, we'll focus on women veterans and innovative programs at VA that aim to address their individual health needs and increase the visibility of their unique perspectives. Our first segment focuses on the one key question. We will hear from Dr. Lori Gowron about this practice, which brings reproductive health counseling into primary care settings for women veterans at the VA Salt Lake City Healthcare System. This practice is based on a program created and developed by the Oregon Foundation for Reproductive Health. Listen on for a conversation between Dr. Gowron and Deborah Whittingham Short, an Army Reserves veteran and innovation specialist at the Central Ohio VA Healthcare System's Chalmers P. Wiley Outpatient Clinic. I am an OBGYN and am at the Salt Lake City VA as well as on faculty at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I am a family planning specialist. I've been at the VA for uh, three and a half years now, and I'm the section chief of gynecology there. And my clinical and research interests really revolve around meeting women's reproductive health goals through education and contraceptive access, especially for women who have chronic health conditions, so that they can plan for pregnancy when it's safest and most desirable in their lives. Will you please give us a one-minute elevator pitch of the One Key Question Project? Reproductive age women veterans are the fastest-growing VA-eligible population, yet outside of a VA women's clinic, they're a minority. 
The healthcare team may not have the knowledge or comfort to ask about pregnancy or contraception needs in the setting of other health conditions. This leads to access barriers and frustrated veterans who feel that their care is siloed. To address this issue, I proposed piloting a screening tool developed by the Oregon Foundation for Reproductive Health that's novel within the VA, the one key question. This tool provides prompts providers to ask every woman every time whether she's considering a pregnancy in the next year. And if not, they discuss contraception. If she is or if she's ambivalent, they provide preconception counseling. And if the provider is not comfortable, they can make a referral to someone who is. This innovation will give providers a tool to improve their comfort and knowledge of pregnancy risk screening, including in non-women's health settings. And through more education and warm handoffs, the VA can partner with veterans to improve reproductive planning and hopefully mitigate adverse pregnancy risks. So what problem were you aiming to solve with the one key question? The problem I see is really twofold. For providers, I'm hoping to overcome some of the comfort and knowledge barriers that they have in asking about reproductive health by giving them an algorithm to follow. Healthcare providers are often taught in school to ask about other sensitive social behaviors such as smoking or alcohol use through routine screening questions. But when it comes to sexual practices, pregnancy, and contraception, these aren't really seen as routine screening by providers outside of women's health fields. And when you're at the VA and rarely care for women, you might need some extra training on the importance of these topics to feel comfortable with the responses a woman may give. Then when it comes to women veterans, there are a few reasons to change practice. First, there are a few life decisions that are more impactful for women than choosing when and if to become pregnant. And this is especially stressful for many women veterans who struggle with chronic health conditions and trying to optimize them before pregnancy in order to decrease risks. For example, making sure they're on safe medications before becoming pregnant. Fortunately, though, nearly half of all pregnancies in the U.S. are unplanned, and then women are faced with the anxiety of a pregnancy when it isn't the right time socially or when their health can be poor. And so ensuring women have individualized education about the risks of their health conditions and ways to improve it or to prevent pregnancy through contraceptive use in the interim, these are important things to empower their decision-making about reproductive health. Additionally, especially within the VA, accessing healthcare can be challenging when they need to see a primary care provider and then maybe get referred to a specialist, maybe get referred to an OBGYN, all to answer questions about contraception and preconception care. And so the one key question can really help providers coordinate care for these services and overcome some of these access barriers. So can you tell us about any unique health disparities that women veterans face compared to the civilian population that can create challenges to reproductive planning? Yes. One of the things that we see within women veterans who specifically access care within the VA is that they have a high prevalence of chronic health conditions, whether these are mental health needs or physical health conditions, substance abuse issues. Some of them are struggling with social issues, including homelessness. And so all of these factors can increase risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, uh, including poor access to prenatal care, increased risk of preterm delivery, and in some cases, even congenital abnormalities that can occur, for example, in the setting of poorly controlled diabetes. And so women veterans have this amazing opportunity to access healthcare through the VA, but many are not aware of the services that are available and the spectrum of reproductive health care that we can provide. And so connecting the care that they're getting through mental health, for example, to the potential care that they could get through the women's clinic is a really important factor in the one key question and care coordination related to that. What has the provider response been? 
most of the providers have been very grateful that they have this information and have been informed by it because they didn't know what their patients were thinking or they presumed they knew and found out differently when their patients filled out the information. Uh, Many of them thought that they were using a method of contraception and actually found that they weren't. And that was an important piece of knowledge because they were on a medication that could have um, been risky if an unintended pregnancy could have happened. There have been a couple of providers who feel it's not their priority during the visits. They have so many other things with complex health conditions to address that they would rather talk about that at a different time. But then they also recognize that there's no perfect time to talk about it. And so it's the struggle of trying to do a lot in a short visit. Have you run into any barriers in implementing the practice? Yes. Initially, when we had the women's clinic staff meeting, it was informative to me to hear some of the struggles that our clinic staff have in doing all of the questions and clinical reminders that need to get asked in primary care visits. So they're asking about housing status and smoking and safety and all these really important things, and we're asking them to do one more. And the immediate feedback was no more checkboxes, nothing in the in the electronic health record. I want this to be more patient-driven in answering these questions. And so it really changed my focus away from trying to get the providers to necessarily always ask it unprompted to really trying to figure out a way that we can implement it from the patient standpoint, whether that means doing this paper survey, which was our initial pilot, or going above and beyond and contacting patients before they come in for their visits so that we have some information ahead of time that the providers can review and respond to. But those are important next steps in in implementing this, this project. Can you share any stories of veterans that have been positively impacted by this practice so far? Yes, we had one woman come in who was really struggling with housing, and she already had Uh, three small children, and had recently lost her housing and was in a transitional situation. And she was coming in to have her IUD or intrauterine device that she was using for contraception removed because her thoughts around it were that she wasn't sexually active, she didn't need contraception. But according to the primary care provider who saw her, when she filled out the survey, she actually thought about it more in the sense of preventing pregnancy over the long run and making sure that it is at a time that fits with her life and she recognizes the challenges that she has right now with the children that she has and stable housing for them. And so she actually opted after reviewing that and thinking about it in the broader preventive health way of keeping it long-term because she wasn't sure where she would end up and whether she would access or be able to access care um, in the near future. Where do you see this going next? I know you're going to spread it throughout your medical center, but then where from there? So spreading beyond the medical center is important and getting the provider feedback. I also need more veteran feedback on this. I want to make sure that we are doing this in a way that is sensitive to their needs and in settings where they feel comfortable sharing this information and that they're getting the responses that they need from the providers because, again, just because they check a box and respond to a question, I want to make sure the providers are connecting them with the resources that that fit their needs. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have more groundwork to do before we can go above and beyond the initial VA settings where we are right now. But I do think if it is acceptable, it is something that we can either build a program where we're reaching out to veterans beyond the VA to help bring them into VA services 
And also we can bring this to other VA settings and replicate the process there. So broadly speaking, in your time at VA, how has VA evolved to better serve women veterans? And like you said, you've been here for three and a half years. Yes, I, I will say that over that time, at least from the healthcare provider standpoint, I see more effort to integrate some of the women's health services across the VA nationally. For example, as an OBGYN, for a while I was the only OBGYN who was working at the Salt Lake City VA, and so it's very isolating to not have other colleagues there in my specialty who I could you know, just figure out how to get a certain procedure done or how to access certain things that I might need for a clinic. And over that time, the National VA Women's Health Office has put together a listserv for OBGYN providers so that we can ask questions about how other VAs are doing things and get some ideas about how to implement services in our setting. We also now have a virtual Grand Rounds, which is an educational session that's about VA policy specific to women's health. For example, there was one on infertility policy and care within the VA, which is something that's changed quite a bit over the past three years. And so having the information helps me to care for for women in my setting. And then another thing, the VA has developed the women's health apps that you can download, and it helps to connect providers to different services so that they can share those with women veterans, as well as some educational tools that help me in my clinical care on a day-to-day basis. And so I do feel like the communication around women's health care and prioritizing integrating providers across the country and sharing knowledge has really changed quite a bit. And I hope that that's trickling down to not only the people that we work with, with the staff so that they know what's available, but then is transforming care for the veterans as well. I'm excited to see where it goes. And as a, I receive my care at the VA primarily, so I can't wait to see when it trickles down to, to where I am here in Ohio. Our next segment features the Women Veterans Comic Anthology, which is capturing the experience of women veterans in an avant-garde form. So we hear from Carrie Russ, who used to be the Women Veterans Program Manager at the White River Junction VA Medical Center, about how a unique collaboration with the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, Vermont, led to this graphic anthology. So when I was working in women's health as the Women Veterans Program Manager, one of the things that women consistently told me was they felt like their stories just were not heard in the way that men, men's stories had been heard and um, their experiences hadn't been written down and captured in the same way. And I had a working relationship with some, an artist who was at the Center for Cartoon Studies in White River Junction, which happens to be really just kind of down the street. And we came together and decided that um, one of the things that we were both really interested in was a, a new and different and innovative way to capture women veterans' stories. And that's how we initially came up uh, with this particular project. Prior to this project, his name is J.D. Lund. He had worked with a few other artists to um, work on stories of some some male veterans here in our area in Vermont. And when that uh, anthology came out, it became evident that there just weren't any women veterans' stories in it. And I think they realized that this was a shortcoming, and they also realized that they they just didn't have any access to women veterans when they, they did that anthology. So 
it was kind of after that one was published that we came together and talked about the Women Veterans Comic Anthology as an idea for a project. Like I heard you saying that they've done a project like this before with mm-hmm. only male veterans. And mm-hmm. so you saw the gap that there wasn't the story of female veterans were kind right. of falling out. Yeah. They kind of had a kickoff when that anthology was published here in the VA. And I went with several of the women veterans who were just women who kind of participated a lot in activities and were here at the VA a lot for various things. And as they were speaking about collecting the stories and experiences, it became very obvious to the women in the room and to me that there just there hadn't been any participation from women veterans. So it was really something that they kind of said, hey, you know, what about us? And then JD and I just at the kind of at the right place at the right time met our innovation specialist and she really, Bryn Cole, and she kind of really helped us get this off the ground. Yeah. And it's so important, right, that both stories are heard because they're different. I can relate to that because I am a woman veteran myself. And I was actually, yes, I am. And uh, I spent eight years in the Army. And I was actually having a conversation about this just yesterday with a coworker of mine who is a male um, who was also in the Army. And uh, we talked about the difference of when a woman veteran tries to tell her story and how it's perceived and how there's the extra work there of lending validity to the experience, which isn't a barrier that he has, has ever had to face or an experience that he had had. Right. And so we kind of talked about how do you fix that? And I said, well, for time being, I said, you're just going to have to speak for me. And he said, I just don't get that. And I said, you'll see. I said, just pay attention the next time you're in a room. And, and that's, see how yeah. That no, that's, I think you're exactly right. And that's kind of what I had been hearing about from women for a long time. I think, you know, something that we still see is that veterans in general often are reluctant to identify as a veteran for all of the reasons that we know. But I think women veterans in particular either don't consider themselves to be a veteran or don't identify in that way. And they just they don't have the same oftentimes. And this is just what I've heard. Don't kind of have the same camaraderie because there just aren't that many of them, especially in a place like rural Vermont, um, Mm -hmm. it's just harder to connect with people. So I think it's just sort of a different, different identity, but that's something that when I was working with women, I heard a lot about, and this was a, a way that I could help people get their experiences out there. So can you speak a bit about the relationship between the Center for Cartoon Studies and the White River Junction VA and how this relationship came to be? So the relationship came to be before I was involved. Um, it's a really cool and just really collaborative relationship. And I think our, our proximity is nice. They're located right in downtown White River Junction, um, and we're, we're not far up the road. And the collaboration started when the, the first anthology was worked on called um, When I Returned, and that was, that was before, well before I was involved. But I think there had been interest in capturing veteran stories and as we know, the VA can be hard for outside agencies to kind of penetrate. <laughs> and mm-hmm. somebody made a connection at some point and, you know, they recruited veterans who were interested in sharing stories. And that's kind of how the relationship developed. And since then, there have been more collaboration with various artists in our creative therapy program and rec therapy program. So it's something that has continued and veterans have I think really, really enjoyed it. It just is such a different way to to share experiences. So you mentioned earlier that it was just recently published, that the anthology was recently published. Is it available to the public? 
It is. It's available online through the Center for Cartoon Studies, um, so people can get it online. They are also, the Center for Cartoon Studies is also selling them. And then I have several hundred copies that I want to distribute to our not only employees and veterans in our in our VA community here, but also out to the public um, mm-hmm. so people can really get a feel for what women's experiences have been like in the military. And I also thought about sending a copy to each women's clinic at every VA in the country so people, you know, can have yeah. one in their waiting room and really kind of see a different and innovative way to share information oh, yeah. and experiences. Can you speak briefly about the challenges that the Women Veterans comic anthology has faced in getting to this point? Well, I think with anything, there's a timeline and a budget. And of course, there's scheduling delays and finding people that wanted to participate and being able to pair the the artist with the veteran, all of that. It was amazing, actually, and, and really fun. But all of those things take time. So I think just kind of working with such a small budget and then, you know, on such a, a kind of strict timeline were the biggest challenges. And it was new. We hadn't done something like this before with a grant like this. So that was a challenge. And I think, you know, my challenge at this point will be really how to thoughtfully distribute these books. Now that I, I have them, I'm really trying to think of absolutely the most effective way um, mm-hmm. to distribute these. And that's still a challenge that I have. It's just sort of this precious thing now. And I just want to make sure that I get them out there responsibly. Thinking of the stories that are in this great work, is there one that stands out to you that you could share with us? The stories are all so different. They are all incredibly humbling and um, very. a lot of them very raw, actually. I think the one that stands out to me most is a story about a veteran, woman, woman veteran named Rachel who was stationed in Greece and she was in the Navy. And she had a terrible injury, not combat related, but a terrible injury. And as she was recovering, she was sent to a hospital in Germany, I think. And that's when she ended up meeting her kind of lifelong partner, Linda, because Linda was her nurse. And it was just a really, not only a really romantic story, but just a, a really, I think, real story about overcoming these horrible physical injuries, but also kind of about the military experience and also about their experience as a gay couple and kind of navigate that road then and then throughout their lives as veterans. So I think that's the story that it's it's hard to pick because they're all really (laughs) amazing and beautiful in their own right. And like I said, some some of them are very hard to read, actually um, uncomfortable. But that's the one that stands out in my, my head always. How many women veterans have participated in the Women Veteran Comic Anthology? I think um, we had about 10 women share their stories. There aren't that many stories in the anthology. I think there had to be decisions made at the sort of amongst the the editing and the artists. But I think 10 women did get to participate, all told. And like I said, it's something that I wish that we could offer to every veteran um, Mm -hmm. in terms of sharing their story in that way. Have the women who were in the anthology, have they seen the final copy? They have. I sent them all, uh, Bryn actually sent them all copies um, a few weeks ago, and we invited them. The uh, Center for Cartoon Studies is hosting a graphic medicine conference, actually, a week from today, and I'll be on the panel 
one of the panels to talk about this. And so they've all been invited to that um, okay. event as well. I'm hoping they come. So what was their initial reaction to seeing this? Like to seeing, I haven't seen it, so but I can just imagine the artistry that was put into it, the thoughtfulness, the attention to detail. What was their reaction to seeing their words and their stories put into this form? I've only seen one of them in person since then, and she was shocked about how real it was and how much the artist really just captured her story and how much she looked like herself. Um, I think she was really not only surprised at just kind of about, you know, how accurate it all was, but I think pleased as well. Can you share what kind of response you've received about the project from other veterans or employees or the more general community? Yeah, I think that just a lot of times people haven't really given any thought or consideration to specific women's experiences in the military. And I think this is such a visceral way of of learning about experiences. So people have been, I think, really just awed and surprised and impressed about it, like the women's um you know, willingness and ability to share, but also the art. I mean, it's just, it is really, really beautiful. So mm-hmm. um, all of the responses so far have been, have been really, really quite positive. And we're just sort of at the beginning of getting this out. Like I said, it just, it was just recently published. So what's the long-term vision for the Women Veterans Comic Anthology? This is sort of now my, my task, right, is really getting this out there. I think the long-term vision is for people to have a better understanding of um, who women veterans are, where they've served, what their experiences have been. And I think ultimately for women veterans to feel more comfortable sharing their stories and identifying as, as veterans. So hopefully this is a tool that will, will help with that. Our last segment will feature an interview with Deborah Harmon Pugh, the National Campaign Chair of Women Veterans Rock, as well as Barbara Pittman, an Air Force veteran who is the D.C. Metro Capital Region State President of the group. Women Veterans Rock is a coalition of women veterans and advocacy organizations supporting women veterans and military families. Stay tuned for a discussion with these groundbreaking advocates. Well, good afternoon. My name is Deborah Harmon Pugh. I am the president of the Healthy Caregiver Community Foundation, and I'm also the national campaign chair for Women Veterans Rock. And good afternoon. My name is Barbara Pittman. I'm the operations and planning analyst for the District of Columbia National Guard. I am also the D.C. Metro president for Women Veterans Rock. Give me a one-minute elevator pitch of Women Veterans Rock. Well, sure. I'm glad to do that. Women Veterans Rock is a coalition of women veteran organizations and women advocacy organizations. We work to support today's military women, women veterans, and military families. We have five pillars of our organization and our mission, and those five pillars include supporting women veterans in the areas of housing, employment, education, financial stability, and health and wellness. At Women Veterans Rock, we are dedicated to engaging and empowering women veterans 
primarily through post-military civic engagement. So what problem is Women Veterans Rock aiming to solve? So that's where the second half of this discussion goes, and that's our work to engage and empower women veterans. We, over the years, have come to understand that it is important for us to connect women to uh, supportive services, to support them in continuing post-military education. But it is also important for us to help them to discover claim and sustain successful post-military experiences and endeavors. And so the second half of that equation is we want to engage and empower uh, women veterans to live successful post-military lives. So what are your specific roles within Women Veterans Rock? Well, I'm currently the president of the D.C. Metro team of Women Veterans Rock. When we say D.C. Metro, that encompasses D.C., Virginia, and Maryland. And you don't really have to go looking for veterans, women veterans. They kind of find you, especially if you frequent the VA Medical Center, uh, the Armed Forces Retirement Home. Those just to name a few. We have several shelters, Not well, not shelters. Those are what I would call SROs, single-room occupancy, is what our women, uh, we have a lot of women that are using those facilities. And when they come up with a, a issue, there's somebody to come to to ask, what should I do? It's a resource, a mm-hmm. resource that knows other resources that are available in the cities or in the um, surrounding counties of uh, Maryland and Virginia. It's where to send somebody and know that they're going to get the help and not be sent back or given the runaround. It's very important. And Deb, your role? We have these ever-changing, ever-evolving roles here at Women Veterans Rock. And I say that smiling and a bit tongue-in-cheek, but the real truth is, is that we are a living, breathing, dynamic organism. And we like it that way because it allows us to have the agility to be able to support, dispatch, create, and respond to needs as they occur within the framework of our mission. And so when you talk about roles, well, um, we both serve on the national leadership team of Women Veterans Rock. We are ambassadors for the organization. We are ambassadors within the community, the military community, and the community at large. And oftentimes, we share roles in terms of from soup to nuts. We often find ourselves as coaches, as advisors, as sisters, as battle buddies, and as friends. And so when we look at what we call the Women Veterans Rock community, it is a living organism that has many, many demands. We can't service them all. That's why we have this expansive network. But the real truth is, is that we are a community that sometimes some people refer to it as a family that work to support the needs that are presented to us on a local level as well as a national level. So we play a lot of roles. And that's so that we can successfully serve and support our network. And that's the mindset that helps perpetuate the viability and sustainability of Women Veterans Rock. 
And so what unique challenges do you see that women veterans face when accessing these services? The compatibility making sure that we pair the veteran up with the proper services and the service providers. Okay. You know, not just because uh, I don't know how in other places they have the uh, VA broken up. We have teams, which is Mm -hmm. like the red, the yellow, the green. Mm -hmm. Same here. the, The different teams. And just because Dr. Smith has only 16 patients, we just put this person over there you got to look at the how do you place women veterans or do they have a mental health issue? Is the physician going to pick up on that? Or that's the Making biggest sure thing. their provider is providing the care that's individualized that to that veteran need. Yeah. Some of the other ways that we look to to be able to support them is, and, and you said it at the top of this segment, that it is a very complex intricate organization. And that's just the nature of the beast. And some people can call it bureaucratic, you can call it whatever it is, but it is huge. We know that um, this is an organization that has over 300,000 employees, and I can't even begin to count and enumerate the sort of services that they offer, but it's complex. And what we look to do to support them in this is, as Barbara suggested, is being able to navigate through the system is one. We work to educate them. And part of educating them is for us to draw within our community and say to our friends that work at the Women's Health Center, say who work in employment and training, say who work in with the TAP program, to be able to go inside of our informal network and get information. Maybe this person is not approaching the system through the correct portal. We need Mm -hmm. to educate them on how to do that. The second thing that we do is we teach them about advocacy. Instead of, you know, walking away angry, you need to walk away with the kind of information that you need so that you can be an advocate. We know that when people go into the healthcare system, whether it is within the Veterans um, Administration or in the community at large, you need to be able to have a family member or some other supporter person in your network to be an advocate for you when you aren't feeling so well and you may not be able to communicate all the nuances. So we work with education, we work with advocacy, and then there's another important part of this, and this is one of the attributes we call the spirit of Women Veterans Rock, and we work to encourage them. And we work to encourage them in a way that they stay engaged to embrace a process that is there to help them out at the end of the day. We know that it is a complex system, but we know that it's a great system. But with this complexity, we need to have people not check out sooner than they should so that they can get the services that are there for them. So we work to educate them. We work to teach them about advocacy for themselves and for others and their families. And we work to encourage them. Don't give up too soon because there is a portal that we can find for you to be able to enter to get the needs that you, you, you are seeking from the healthcare system. So, Deb and Barbara, what are, I guess, the last things that you want listeners to know about Women Veterans Rock and the work that you're doing? What are final things that you want to share about your work? The other thing that I think that the Women Vets Rock community is perpetuating is we are working to be a change in the social paradigm. 
We like to change the national narrative around what happens with women veterans when they separate from military service. And part of changing that social paradigm and that national narrative is we are growing, embracing, engaging, encouraging, and educating women to be a voice for themselves and a voice for this community and a voice for their families. And even though our organization is called Women Veterans Rock, we have a lot of dual career marriages and families. And so we are really dedicated to strengthening military families. Because when we strengthen military families, we come together as a community to address and support and correct and change. So I'm I'm just excited about the work that's happening through the Women Veterans Civic Leadership. Institute, the women that we met nine years ago at the Boys and Girls Club on Benning Road, those are the same women who are members of the Women Veterans Rock 2020 delegation to Capitol Hill. We go there every year as a public policy group, not to kick in doors, but to be a resource to talk about the kinds of changes that we would like to see made in veteran health services and public policies. And so the thing that I'm most excited about and proud as a member of this community that we do is we work to change minds, we work to change attitudes, and we work to change public policy so that we can have public services that are responsive and accessible to men and women and families that serve this country. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And as a woman veteran, I appreciate you. Well, yeah. Thank you for Thank you for me. your interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of VHAIE. We hope you enjoyed hearing about VA and the work employees are doing to improve care and outcomes for women veterans and to make visible their unique military experiences. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. Until next time.